three, two, one. Hey everybody, it's me, the Einstein of Wall Street. We are here with Trade Like Einstein. I am Peter Tuckman, and we're here on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in the balcony. History is made in this building every single day. Somebody with my long-term experience, I've been here for 137 years, it is my responsibility to help teach you how to navigate this market successfully. Boom! How you doing? This is the breakdown. We're here with my friend, Ben Gulak. We're seeing eye to eye for the first time in many, many years. Anyway, look, we've done a lot of stuff about markets. We've done a lot of stuff about inspiration, motivation, and all that kind of fun stuff because this show gives me the breath to be able to do anything I really want to do. That's the great part of Nicole Lappin and the team here at Bunny News Network. But I thought it would be interesting to talk to somebody who's absolutely fascinated me since I met him. He's got an amazing story. We're going to pick it up at the age of 17. He's going to tell you a little bit about him, and he's going to tell you his journey to here. I guess this show's all about the journey from the beginning of being a 17-year-old as a kid and what he's done to get where he is today. We're here actually to also talk about the launch of his new company, Nala. Okay, it's basically a dating site for amazing artists, a data bank of artists and, and, and art collectors and putting them together. We'll get to that at the end of the show. Just give me a little background, introduce yourself and give us the fast version. Tell us who you are and what the heck you're doing here with me. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's My pleasure. nice to see you again. I know it's been almost a decade since we first met. So Correct. It's good to be, it's good to be here. Um, Yes, now you you and I met through the art world. I Correct. Think I first tried getting you some of my some of my paintings. Um, my background's a little unusual. I grew up in an art camp, did a, studied fine art all through high school, did a fine arts program in Italy when I was younger, and then changed career paths and went into engineering. Um, okay. So we went to MIT for mechanical engineering when I was eighteen. Dropped out my first term. He's a freaking genius. Part Let's just my say first that. Term because one of my high school science for projects sort of went viral. Tech, so listen to this story. So he had a science project in high school. Let's hear about it. It was, it was totally nuts. It was, um, I built this like one wheel, kind of like a cooler version of a Segway. It was like a Segway meets street bike. Right. And uh, it's a one wheeled motorcycle at the age of 17 as a high school project. And the, the purpose is supposed to get me into a good university. Um, it ends up sort of going a little beyond that. Ended up getting on the cover of Popular Science Magazine as Invention of the Year. That got me onto the show Dragon's Den. And Dragon's Den is the Canadian version, the inception of Shark Tank. And before Kevin and Robert moved to the States, they're on Dragon's right, Den. Right. So I'm starting school and I have all five dragons wanting to give me a bunch of money. And I quickly think I don't need school and I drop out to start this business. Ran that for 10 years. The business totally ended up doing something completely different. And at about the 10 year mark, I realized, you know, it's time for me. This isn't what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. And it is time to go back to school. Uh, so I went back to university. Hold on. Stop. Let's talk about this. He's 17 years old. He's in high school. He invents the thing called the Uno, which is a one-wheel motorcycle. He gets on the Shark Tank of Canada, Dragon what? Dragon's Den. Oh, Dragon's Den. Okay. He ends up, you get a deal? I did. He got a deal. Okay. He's working on this for a long time. He ends up going to MIT. He ran that company for 10 years. And then what happened? And then I reached a point in my life where I wasn't happy. That with. wasn't enough. Okay, so go ahead. In his spare time. So in the process of sort of getting this company off the ground, in order to deal with stress, I started painting as a hobby. And this is when you and I sort of first entered Correct. each other's lives. Um, I'd always loved art, so I started painting. I realized that I didn't want to just have a bunch of canvases stacking up and collecting dust in the basement. I was going to try and sell them. And I really looked at sort of the art as a business and I started putting my artwork in galleries. I was very lucky. I got into some, some good galleries and started selling the work. 
And uh, at that point, I and I own a bunch of his art, and it's really freaking great. Go ahead. Yeah, they're really. He found himself. Sorry to interrupt him, but when he was 17 years old, he came down to the New York Stock Exchange, and he was featured. He did an amazing interview talking about the Uno, and that was the beginning. And that sort of inspired him to make a picture of the Tasmanian devil riding around on the floor of the stock exchange, which he gave me as a painting, which looks friggin' like me. Go ahead. I'm getting sort of. I'm learning about the ins and outs of the art industry. And I'm now at a sort of 28 years old and I'm thinking, you know, if I want to keep growing or keep working on this business, it's going to take another sort of decade to get to where I want to be. This isn't what I want to be doing. I need to go back to school. And my only sort of opportunities, because basically I only had high school credits, was to apply as a totally fresh well, So you student. never ended up going to college. You, I never, I never you dropped out to do the UNO and now you're 28, want to go back to school. Okay. So I'm looking at my options and I can either reapply as a 28-year-old high school student basically. <laughs> College dropout, go ahead. Um, but MIT has this really cool thing where you're you're a lifetime student. So I was accepted once. I didn't have to oh, reapply again. So okay. my only real option to go back to university was to go back to MIT. Okay. And what I, a shame. I didn't re I realized I didn't want to do mechanical engineering anymore. I wanted to try something different. Computers seems to be the way of the future. So I went into computer science. I did a double degree in computer science and data econometrics, which is sort of like the precursor to artificial intelligence, you're using all this data and creating algorithms on like how to use the data. How did you learn AI within that environment? So computer science was basically the study of algorithms, right? Like how do you create- oh, I didn't even know that. Okay, cool. And maybe that's a wrong definition, but that's sort of how I understood it. So it's how do you write these sort of formulas that can do things on their own or, or glean information from you know the data that you feed into them? The okay. data econometrics part of the degree is the study of like data science. So how do you take, you know, large amounts of data, find patterns and like do th useful things, meaningful things with it. So the combined degree of you know, the, the algorithms with the data science is really what teaches people the ability to, you know, write machine learning code where you can now start having things learn and become smarter through machine learning. So that's similar. It's it's interesting because it's way over my head and I'm not, I know I look like Einstein. I'm not that friggin' smart, but at the end of the day, as the stock exchange, started developing and, uh, and adapting a lot of technology around trading. We have electronic trading, we have high frequency trading. And so what does it look like from my industry is? So think about it, in the old days when we would get orders, orders were placed by a person, they were written down, there was a ticket by 100,000 shares of IBM. It was then called to one person who called it to another person. It came down to the floor by, by phone. That person would then beep a broker, the broker would go out to the post and they would actually engage in the market a quarter for 100,000, 100,000 and a half take them. That was the kind of open out prime marketplace. As technology started coming into the market, and I was sort of the the first, the last person to ad adopt it because I've never owned a computer in my life. I don't tech like technology at all. I like the old open outcry, the human being screaming and yelling stuff. That was that for me. So, but it turned out it was going to happen without me. So they basically gave me an ultimatum and said, you know what? At the end of the day, if you're not willing to adopt and adapt to this new technology coming to the floor. You're out of here. So I adapted. And that's been one of my my secret sauces, my superpower, as I've obviously been around for 137 years. I've had to adapt and adopt to all the new stuff that's coming on, even though I didn't like it. Sometimes you don't need, you've got to accept things even though you don't like them. And at the end of the day, the best way to actually accept them is to embrace them. And so I ended up embracing some technology came to the floor. But as far as uh, um, machine learning and trading happened, so this whole thing called high frequency trading came down. So basically, when you're not doing it human to human to human to the floor to trade and interact that way, it's obviously an order 
that's coming down electronically and ends up in a pathway that goes here, 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 and ends up coming down to the floor where it goes to the market maker and engages stock. Obviously, people with technology, technological backgrounds as yourself figured out, so how do I get ahead of that? How do I utilize that path, that journey electronically that orders take from the guy who comes up with the idea or the person who writes the algorithm to come up with a trading yeah. mentality? How do I get to it, interact to it, and benefit it and sort of slice and dice that information. So that what ended up happening to me was there were guys that said, Peter, you need to engage this new technology. And it was high frequency trading. And what was that? So we've built computers that can actually see the information as it comes down that highway. We can see it before anybody else sees it. We're talking about multi micro fractions of seconds. And then what we will do is we will jump ahead of that interact the marketplace so that by that time that car is coming down the road, the we've already seen it, the price has changed, and we are there flipping and whatnot. So I could be wrong, but I think the technology was made by was figured out by Canadians actually. Really? I, that's I, very I, possible. I think so. I don't want to be misquoted, but I think it that's sounds like everything Canadian good that's invention. happening in your you're Canadian. Yeah. Okay, well there you go. Everything in his world is happening good in Canadian. So anyway, so for me, that's incredibly fascinating because it's a matter of, it's here to stay. It's something we have to interact with. You've taken something that you love, which is art, which is something something that, look, for me, right, I have a gallery on the sixth floor of the Stock Exchange. Art for me was something I kind of grew up with just because my parents are Eastern Europeans and it was something that was a big deal in our house. We had a lot of coffee table books on the coffee table. So I always looked at pictures of art. But when I came down here and I got involved in social media, art became a big thing for me. And so I became sort of, I was at the corner of walk and don't walk with artists whose artwork related to money. Yeah. And that's kind of where I got to meet you too, is came into my world and I kind of invited them down here. And then we ended up doing this gallery. I'm sort of getting, I'm getting distracted. But at the end of the day, so tell me how you took this thing that was sort of your savior to sort of peace and serenity and, and related it and interacted it with this incredible brain that you've got as far as AI goes. So there's a, there's a, a few intermediary steps. Before going back to school, I was painting as a hobby and selling my work personally. Right, right. When I went back to university, the classes were insane. I was like the dinosaur trying to learn you know, how to program. I'd never programmed anything in my life before, and I was suddenly going to start doing computer science. Right. So I had to focus full-time on studying. So I decided instead of selling my own work because I didn't have time to paint anymore, I would start selling artists' work who I had met over the years through travels. You know, I had a great artist in Egypt that I, whose work I loved. I knew some artists in Cuba whose work I loved. Guys who I thought were very talented but unable to enter the global market. And I had all these relationships with galleries who I was working with. So I started putting their work in galleries. And like overnight, I could take an artist whose work was selling for $75 at the Havana Art Market to tourists and now sell his work for $4,000 at a gallery in London. In Europe. Exactly the same talent, exactly the same canvases, just different market, different, different sets of eyes. And at the same time, the artist's lives changed dramatically because right. they were suddenly exactly. making much more money. Right. So I had this sort of business model that, you know, it's not necessarily when you walk into galleries, you see the same names. For me, I was in the pop sort of pop and street art scene. Right. So the galleries that I was dealing with, it wouldn't matter if you're in Miami, New York, London, Paris, Mykonos, you see the same artists over and over again. It's almost and, like these and galleries. And also similar work too, because within the pop space, there's a lot right, of derivatives. Started stuff. obviously by Andy Warhol and some others, but everybody sort of followed suit with that. It's sort of a, it, it, look, there's a lot of collectors in it, but it's very similar art. It's very similar art. And I was thinking, you know, there's so much talent out there. If you can bring more art to the marketplace, um, 
Well, there's a, there's going to be demand for it, yeah. and our lovers will love Create, it because they're going to see connecting people. people to opportunity. So what I was already doing on a smaller scale, I have this agency called Culture Cartel, and we have sort of 12 artists that we represent exclusively. But that worked, and we were making enough money to actually finance the development of Nala. So tell us about Nala. Nala. Nala, brand new company, www.nala.art. Art. Go. A-R-T. All right. <laughs> um, it's that on a much, much larger scale. Okay. So... The goal is to sort of broaden up the entire art market where we allow all artists everywhere to sign up, upload their work into our database. And just like how Spotify knows exactly where the next song someone will enjoy listening to, or Netflix knows the next movie suggestion you'll like. Or you mean the fact that my iPhone knows that I was talking about a Mexico vacation and it sends me a little info on it? Okay. Exactly like that. So we have a recommender engine that can put artwork directly in front of the most likely buyers. So now instead of hoping that a gallery will, t- will take you on and maybe someone that walks into their showroom will see or may work, like what they're seeing. Or, you know, if you do the right videos and the right soundtrack for an Instagram reel, maybe someone will see it. Right. We can short track that sales process by putting your work directly in front of the most likely buyer. So it's like a dating site for, for col- art collectors and artists well we call it art lovers because it's that the segment of the market that we're seeing with so the most exciting segment of the market is the lower end of the market under twenty thousand dollars okay and the kind of thing that almost anybody can really enjoy um so you don't necessarily art collector i've always felt has been, has this connotation of like sort of a snooty Right, right, right. The blue, the blue chip art guys, right. Every, Sotheby's, Sotheby's, Sotheby's and auctions, right. But everybody loves art. Art is part of our very, you know, genetic, our, our DNA. When we find caves that were that the Neanderthals lived in, the first thing that the news covers is cave paintings. Right. Or that we found this pottery. Right. It's been, even when we had the, we were at our most primitive level, we were still creating. So right. the need for humans to create and the need to enjoy that creativity. Right is intrinsic and almost anybody wants to have something meaningful on their walls. And I think the idea behind Nala where we can allow anybody, no matter what their budget is, to find original work by an actual artist that fits their budget is really cool. Okay. I, you know, I love that. Look, there are a lot, art, art is something really important to me. And we're also seeing it. Look, art is the last one. The first time I did a interview with a gentleman named Mr. E, he's a famous artist from Miami, who this gentleman knows his work was he talked about it. We did an interview on the other balcony and we talked about art being the last unregulated investment, right? At the end of the day, the stock exchange, right, is a very regulated place. Obviously, it's not as regulated as it should be or else we wouldn't have the banking crisis we had in the last couple of weeks. However, but art is, art's value is what someone's willing to pay for it. But we do know that people love to make replicas of art. We do know, look, at the end of the day, you talked about those snooty, Sotheby's blue chip art collectors. We know that there is art that is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. We also know that there is art that at some point nobody thought was worth a lot of money. We know that a lot of one of some of the greatest painters that have come out of, let's say, the French Renaissance were actually did not benefit from the incredible value that their art ended up being until after their death. So at the end of the day, I love this. And also with their companies like Masterworks, which basically has taken blue chip art and has fractionalized it to the point that every person on the face of the earth who has a hundred or a thousand dollars can now participate in the ownership of a piece of art. So what Ben is doing is basically taking his knowledge that he got at MIT about AI and computer science and his incredible love of art. And it's sort of, you know, what I love about him is he's a real humanist. I guess he does all this crazy shit in his spare time. But at the end of the day, he's putting all that together to bring together the database of thousands of artists globally, 
okay, whose art is less than $20,000, and collectors who's already in a database, wherever it may be, and I'm sure he'll find it, putting them together so that you will actually be able to get, the artists will be able to get in touch with people who are more likely to buy their art. I think it's spectacular. May, Where are we may, at? may I add one or two things? Yeah, go ahead. So I in, just simplified that. I'm in, sorry. Initially, we thought we would just be going after the low end of the art market. But what we're seeing, and now that we've opened up registrations, we're seeing artists, very, very established artists that work with some of the top tier galleries all over the world, signing up and joining the platform and actually asking how can they help us grow? Because Artists intrinsically, when you talk to any artist, they, almost everyone that works at galleries has horror stories. Are they not getting paid? Can't not be able to get their work back? Not having their work displayed properly? And at the same time, everyone and galleries get take fifty percent. And galleries take fifty percent. So what we're doing actually fits a, fulfills something that artists desperately need. And we're having work uploaded that's far surpassed the value of what we expected in the beginning when right. we first launched. Um, there's millions of artists out there. Artists truly are the lifeblood of the art industry. And if you take artists out, and a lot of the online platforms that sort of see as competition only work with galleries. If you take the artists out, there is nothing to actually sell. And we're the, really the first platform that is truly, so we say on our website, built by artists for artists. I'm an artist and I, I built Nala specifically to really help artists get out there because when you look at the way, when you talked about deregulating the art markets unregulated, you're absolutely right, but the buyers don't necessarily understand just how unregulated it is. I mean, there's multiple gallery corporations that have multiple that are multinationals with locations in all the major cultural hubs in the city. They sign their artists up to exclusive contracts where they completely control in a monopolistic way the artist's sale price. So they can say, oh, this artist in six months is going to have a solo show in Hong Kong. The price will go up this much percentage. They tell their buyers coming to the store, this is a great investment. But in reality, the secondary market for some of these artists is almost non-existent. So they walk away having spent tons of money feeling, oh, that was a great deal. In reality, they're totally operating in a bubble, isolated from another gallery that has another chunk of artists that they represent, telling their customers the exact same thing. So let's talk, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but let's talk about that bubble. Because we saw a couple of years ago, the NFT market, right? I call them non-fungible Tuckmans. Some call them non-fungible tokens, right? Pictures of apes or pudgy penguins and nothing against the apes and the penguins. But basically, we talked about art is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. They created an absolute stir in an unregulated market in accordance with crypto. And we saw pictures of, of pixelated uh, monkeys and pudgy penguins go for millions and millions of dollars. At the end of the day, one of the good things about the blockchain and crypto in that way is that there was a licensing deal that went on with the open season on some of these online galleries is that a lot of money did go back to the artists. But at the end of the day, I think what's great about what you're doing is at the end of the day, artists obviously want to get the best for their art. They also want to be part of the community of people who are appreciating what they're doing. And that's kind of one of the great benefits of it. It is. And ideally, I mean, assuming we hit a critical mass and we got enough users on our system, the goal is we're going to truly open up the art market where even on a low level, an artist who maybe only, not everyone goes on to become the next Picasso or Warhol, but even if they only paint for four or five years, they'll see price increases and decreases based off of, you know, our sales data that we collect or trending, you know, what themes are trending, all, all this sort of the information we can see. And ultimately what the market is saying about the artist's work, we can track that and we can allow art lovers, even if they buy a piece for a hundred dollars, they can see it and know that their piece actually went up in value or decreased in value. And it will be what the global free market is willing to pay for it, as opposed to 
what you know the sort of curators hyper inflated exactly and that's a beautiful thing and i love that about it because at the end of the day what we did see happen to those multi-million dollar nfts when crypto went down and that whole market blew up things went from being worth millions of dollars to absolutely zero and we have a whole generation of people who are walking around with funny pictures of pudgy penguins and nothing against the pudgy penguin nft but on their phone that actually at one point had a lot of money and this is one of my messages on the floor it's not about how much money you make it's how much you keep at the end of the day these were not great investments not only were they not able to for the artists to be represented in this whole community at the end of the day the value went from a million to zero and nobody was really compensated nobody got to appreciate it what you're doing is amazing I'm really happy we got to see you today. NALA.art, www.nala.art. Ben Gulak, thanks for coming. Thank you so much. Really Pleasure. great to see you. Thank you.